Welcome to Heart Matters, a show about all aspects of heart health, brought to you in partnership with the Providence Heart Institute and Boston Scientific. The Providence Heart Institute is a leading integrated network of cardiovascular care with a focus on putting our patients at the heart of everything we do. And we are committed to making a positive difference in every life we touch. As part of that commitment, we are bringing the doctors to you. Hello, I'm your host today, Judy Dusick. I am the executive director of the Providence Heart Institute in the Oregon region. Joining me on this episode is Dr. Alex Pan, a cardiologist with Providence Swedish, practicing in the Seattle area, who I have actually had the privilege to work with. And on this episode of Heart Matters, we are discussing how to take care of your heart wherever you might be in your heart health journey. Dr. Pan, hello. It is great to see you. How are you today? Great. Judy, thanks for having me. Yep, it's a privilege, and um, I, I'm really excited about our conversation today. But before we get started, can you tell me a little bit about yourself and um, the work you do at Providence Swedish? Yes. So uh, my name is Alexander Pan. Uh, I'm one of the general cardiologists here at the Providence with the Swedish group. Um, I was uh, born and raised in Brazil, went to medical school in Brazil, did my internal medicine training up in Boston, Boston University. After medicine, I actually did nephrology at Emory University before I went to cardiology training at the University of Hawaii. Uh, I've been with Swedish since 2014 as a general cardiologist um, and love what I do. That sounds amazing. So you've had you've had experience in, in different geographies and cultures, I'm sure, um, taking care of patients. So thank you for sharing that. So we want to talk about how to take care of your heart. And that might look different for our listeners, depending on where they are in their health journey. So we may have some people realizing their lifestyles put them at risk or just starting out a path to better health um, to help more with prevention. Or we might have listeners who are already past the point and need to prevent further heart issues or recover from a heart issue. So what's your first piece of advice for everyone, um, no matter where they are in their journey in terms of what's what's the philosophy around how do we take care of our heart? So my, we're going to be talking about different aspects of heart health today, but my truly first piece of advice is that your body is the only one you will ever have. Maybe you have a few computers, cell phone, cars, maybe even a few spouses, but all of them may be replaceable, but your, your body is the only one you get. That's it. You may That's spend true. an hour or so in your car during your daily commute, but you spend 100% of the time in your body. So make sure it's a comfortable place to be. That is a great point. And, um, and we have full control of that. So it's, you know, kind of going through this journey is that, um, one, that's, it, that's a very powerful statement. And it's important for people to not feel overwhelmed in their journey because we know that that can cause them to either avoid a process or stop because it's too much. So um, let's talk about some small steps that people can take, um, maybe even one at a time, um, that will have the most impact on their heart health and and the one body that they're going to get to live life in, right? <laughs> <laughs> yes. Uh, I would say always try to make small, sustainable, sustainable changes. 
People often describe impressive and hard to sustain plans like becoming a vegan tomorrow, uh, never having a beer again in their lives. Mm -hmm. Those are drastic and sometimes very non-sustainable changes. The important thing to really remember is that your health journey is a marathon, not a splint. Sto mm -hmm. Slow and steady really wins the race. Given that, um, we, we are uh, really looking at how do we maintain our bodies, right? This vessel that we're living life in. And we talk about knowing our numbers being important. So can you tell us what that means and what numbers we should know and how often um, should we be checking these numbers? So <clears throat> the numbers, uh, it varies from people to people, but basically mm -hmm. the very basic we should know is blood pressure, cholesterol, uh, cholesterol levels, exercise time and intensity. Um, but how often you should be checking these numbers depends on each patient's individual situation mm -hmm. and where they are in their health journey. Right. I can, I can um, relate to that. So my mo most important number is my cholesterol because I actually do have high cholesterol. So um, since I was 28, after I had my second um, child, um, really, you know, started to discover that and um, every year since I've always gotten my cholesterol checked and my doctor looks at me funny, like, why do you want to get that? I'm like, because I know I have high cholesterol. I've had it and I need to maintain it. And it's gone up and down over time, but, um, you're absolutely correct. My blood pressure always seems, you know, normal. I know at least know what my baseline is. So, um, I could not agree more with, with that. So, um, there's a lot of advice to keep your heart healthy that people are familiar with but they may not understand the reason behind the doctor's guidance, right? So um, help us understand what's happening to your body, for example, when you smoke. Um, we know it causes lung cancer, but why is it especially dangerous for your heart? Well, smoking, it's actually, there's a, it's, there's a plethora of data regarding cigarette smoking. I'm just gonna start off with the basic about smoking. Uh, it's the le leading preventable cause of mortality responsible for over 7 million deaths in the world and over almost half a million deaths in the United States every year. The three major ways cigarettes is going to kill us is through cardiovascular disease, various types of cancer, and lung disease. Now, to, your, to answer your question specifically to cardiovascular disease, cigarette smoking is estimated to be responsible for over 10% of all cardiovascular deaths worldwide and one third in our country. Wow. The ways cigarette smoking is gonna be harmful to our cardiovascular health is through one, it contracts the heart artery. It basically contracts our coronaries. It increases propensity to form blood clots. We call it hypercoagulable state. Right. It works, worsens your cholesterol levels. It increases inflammation and causes endothelial dysfunction, which means one of the layers inside the vessels is unable to function properly, often leading to abnormal contraction in the artery, affecting your whole body's blood supply. The right. good news though, <clears throat> Judy, is that smoking cessation is associated with a very rapid and substantial reduction in the risk of cardiovascular events. And so the earlier we, we stop, even though you've smoked for many years, it will, you will still have benefits towards stopping smoking. Right. Um, I'm going to, I'm going to throw probably two curveballs. So one, 
we know that um, smoking cessation is difficult. You know, I've had um, family members who have gone down that journey and they experience things like, um, you know, that could discourage them like, well, I gain weight when I quit or it's, it's really difficult. Um, but, you know, what are some important strategies when, when um, really trying to quit smoking? Obviously, the motivation around this is not good for your heart, but what, if, um, what are some strategies you've seen your patients do to kind of help keep them motivated to just to just um, stop smoking? To be honest with you, Judy, um, the sad part is in our clinic, most of the times we see people stop smoking after their event, right? right. I almost died. I was in the ICU for two weeks. You know, my heart is at working at 30% now, and now I'm going to quit smoking. And mm. that's one of the motivations they have to stop smoking. Right. But the, but I always try to tell patients, you know, this is not the way you want to find out that smoking is so smoking cessation is so important. You want to find out before this happens. Unfortunately, you know, I get it. Smoking cessation is very hard. My own father smoked through colon cancer, and mm -hmm. uh, it's only after a few years that he was able to truly stop. I would say that you know, uh, really think about your body as having uh, you as having your only this is your only body right uh, how you treat it is how um how you're going to be and how comfortable you're going to be in this body and the earlier you stop smoking the less chance of something happening in the future and a lot of times even even breathing or not it's not just about heart events is how you breathe is right. how much uh, how much you cough a lot of other things associated with smoking right so have you seen um obviously with this trend of vaping is that does that have the same effect as um smoking cigarettes well that's an excellent question up until recently we did not have that data but now mm -hmm. more and more data uh came, is coming out saying that vaping and marijuana smoking has similar deleterious effect mm -hmm. of smoking uh, cigarettes. My goodness. Right. And so, so this is an important takeaway is just that, um, we, for, for people who smoke, um, you don't want to wait until you have a heart event. So if this is, you're telling people, be, you know, you don't really want to see them because by the time they come to you, it's, it's, it may be, um, it's not that it's too late, but there's damage that has, that has been caused. But if you're talking to people who haven't, um, you know, been sent to a cardiologist yet, there's a chance, there's still a chance. And so hopefully they're getting this from their uh, other care team, you know, like their primary care doctors or, um, you know, whoever they're seeing to, to keep them healthy is um, the sooner you can quit that habit, the better. Um, so my next question is, um, and this goes with, you know, your, your background in nephrology is that, you know, so for, for people with diabetes, how does having high uh, blood sugar levels affect the heart? Oh, that's a uh, diabetes affect multiple different organs. Mm -hmm. uh, specifically for the heart, uh, you know, elevated blood sugar levels increases your cholesterol levels and the oxidation of these uh, cholesterol, these lipids, we call it. Yeah, mm -hmm. it uh, contributes to plaque formation in the vessels. Uh, a lot of many diabetic patients also have insulin resistance, which contributes to a loss of a substance called we call nitric oxide, mm -hmm. which helps the endothelium, the inner lining of the vessels work properly. 
Yeah, diabetes in itself also promotes inflammation, which just accelerates plaque formation and increases risk of these plaques rupturing, causing a heart attack. So in many different ways, yeah? Yeah. Yeah, so we call this, you know, if, if somebody has um, heart disease, likely one of their other comorbidities um, or health risks is, is that they've got diabetes. But the next one we're going to talk about is high blood pressure. So all these things are interrelated. And um, we know that keeping our blood pressure at a healthy range um, is ideal. But um, tell us about what those numbers should be. And more importantly, what do they mean? Especially because um, clinical research has, has kind of changed the numbers a little bit. But I think the bar has been sort of risen on where our blood pressure should be these days. Yes, absolutely, Judy. I'm glad for the question. So in the past, we were more lenient about blood pressure. But over time, we noticed that the lower the blood pressure, the better, the better outcomes in multiple different organs. So the 2017 ACCHA guidelines actually, like you said, um, made the bar a little bit higher. Yep. And by definition, normal blood pressure nowadays is a systolic less than 120 and a diastolic less than 80. Systolic, the higher number when you get the blood pressure reading and the diastolic, the lower number. Less than 120 over 80 is classified as normal. Now the next category is elevated blood pressure with mm -hmm. a systolic number of 120 over, uh, to 129 and a diastolic number of less than 80. Now, once you cross that threshold, then we start calling people hypertension. There's two stages of hypertension. Stage one is defined as a systolic of 130 to 139 or a diastolic of 80 to 89. Okay. The next stage is stage two hypertension with a systolic of 140 and above or a diastolic of 90 or above. Um, and if there's any disparity of which number is high, you always use the higher number. So if a systolic classifies you as stage one, but a diastolic classifies you as stage two, you always take stage two. You always use the higher number, the higher category. Okay. Thank you for that. I think that's an important takeaway for our listeners, especially as um, hopefully they uh, pick up, take up the habit of, of tracking their blood pressure. Cause you can do that just about anywhere these days, you know, yeah. you go to a, a Walgreens or most grocery stores have where you can go get your blood pressure done. Um, or even the, just buying one for, for your, for your home is relatively, um, achievable these days. So. Yeah. But uh, Judy, may, may I just say that, you yeah. know, a lot of people say, you know, oh, I checked my blood pressure, check my, well, but what does that mean? Right. So American Heart Association has very specific recommendations of how to check the blood pressure. Okay. You now you bought the machine and you go home, you're rushing and you're watching TV and now I've got the blood pressure machine and somebody's arguing with you. I check my blood pressure is high. <laughs> but there, there are specific, specific ways of checking the blood pressure and, and, and the basic instructions we always, we should be telling patients are the following. Okay. Number one, yeah. you have to relax. You have to be sitting on the chair. Your feet has to be on the ground your back supported, and you'll be calm for five minutes. Five minutes, five minutes of doing mm -hmm. nothing, which is a very long time. That is a long time. <laughs> no caffeine, exercise, smoking for at least 30 minutes before blood pressure measurement. Yes. Before you check the blood pressure, always go to the bathroom, empty your bladder, 
you know, uh, uh, before you check yep. the pressure. Yes. You have to remove all the clothing. So you'll make sure you're not wearing like two layers of sweaters and then checking your blood pressure through the sweater. Yeah. Yes. The blood pressure machine should be validated. And a lot of times the blood pressure machine, and if you don't know if the blood pressure machine is really validated, next time you bring it to your uh, your clinician's office so that we can check a manual and make sure the blood pressure machine is saying the same thing. The arm has to be supported. Now, mm -hmm. the arms should not be dangling on the side of a chair. The arm has to be supported. And the level of the cuff should be sort of the level of the heart. And if you don't know okay. where the heart is, the, the level of the cuff should be roughly where your where your sternum is, where your, yep. you know, the bone in the middle of your chest. The cuff size is also important, okay? You shouldn't be using too small of a cuff size. And the bladder, the length of the bladder should uh, should uh, should kind of be 80% of the uh, the length of your, your the circumference of your arm. Right. Those are the main, main things. And if you want to check two sets of blood pressure, make sure you do it uh, approximately two minutes apart or so. Okay. And, okay. The, and the the bladder, you're meaning the, the the strap that goes around your arm. So it's, yeah. So yeah. The, the, there's the strap. Yeah. yeah. And inside the strap, there's this bladder, right? The, 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 where the you can feel out. how much the cuff is inflating. Make sure it's not too short of a bladder, too, too short of a cuff. Okay, got or, it. Or too long. I mean, it, no, long is not a problem. Short is the problem. Right. No, that is is really important, um, and I think that's why uh, it's important that we understand how to do it, so we're getting accurate information, um, and then taking note of our environment, which is, you know, I've I've talked about this before. Is just you know, uh, stressors and and other things that can cause our blood pressure to go up, and that's that's a that's important for people to realize why it's also uh, critical to manage your stress and those, those stress factors that are sort of triggering your rise in blood pressure. I mean, just what you just said right now really is all those things. And, and if you're constantly running at that all the time, um, you're just revving that engine all the time. Right. And, and this is, uh, really kind of wearing, putting wear and tear on, on your heart, the thing that keeps us going. Um, so I, uh, the next question really is around, um, the foods we eat. And so uh, we know that we should rarely eat fried foods. Um, typically, the things that are fried end up being really yummy. But um, what is it? Uh, why is it that fried foods are really just, you know, should should be a no, no. Um, but some high fat foods like avocados, for example, um, are considered heart healthy. That's a great question. You know, while historical recommendations from several U.S. organizations over the past decades emphasize decreasing the total amount of fat in the diet, the, the overall body of research really doesn't support that. It actually supports that the type of fat that you eat is far more important than the proportion of calories from the total fat. So based on that, the 2019 ACCHA prevention guidelines, the 2015 and 2020 dietary guidelines recommended no upper limits on the percentage of calories from fat. Um, <clears throat> we do have large epidemiological studies that showed that two, two of the locations with the lowest incidence of coronary disease are Crete, one of the Greek islands, and Japan. You know, although the Japanese diet has, has, was very low in fat, uh, the, the, the people in Crete typically have a high total fat content diet. 
but mostly mm -hmm. composed of a specific type of fat of mana unsaturated fats basically from vegetable so sources so nowadays you know the general recommendations that we usually uh, give in terms of diet is don't try to focus on restricting total fat intake instead increase consumption of minimally processed foods fruits yeah. nuts seeds vegetables whole grain products plant oil yogurt seafood those are linked to lower risk of cardiovascular disease but not only that lower risk of diabetes and obesity uh, we should reduce the consumption of processed meats and carbohydrate rich food in refined uh, uh, carbohydrate rich foods that are high in refined starch mm -hmm. added sugars trans fat and sodium um, uh, and I'll ne never assume that a low fat or fat free varieties mm -hmm. uh, on the packaging uh, are healthy a lot of times uh, there are more um, they, they have a lot of con uh, a higher content in refined starches added sugars okay. which are associated with lower good cholesterol the LDL and higher triglycerides and even bad cholesterol yeah right right and maybe even sodium so I've I've, I've seen that even some plant even though it's plant-based stuff they, they can also be really loaded with with sodium as well yeah absolutely absolutely really yeah. look at the label you'll be surprised you'll be very surprised of how much yeah. sodium their food because some would think hey they don't they don't taste that salty doesn't have much sodium i don't think they have a lot of sodium look at the label right right yeah no i um i got direction from from my doctor about avocados and she was like, eat as many avocados as you want. Because, <laughs> you know, too much of a good thing, you know, sometimes it's bad. But no, she's, she was totally uh, on board with avocados. Um, and so learned a lot about uh, the different types of fat. And, you know, it's important to raise the good cholesterol because it helps them manage the bad cholesterol. Is that is that correct? That is correct. Okay. Um, so talk to us about, and, and I've heard this for many years now, um, and my husband actually loves to cook Mediterranean food. Um, so I'm very lucky that way. So talk to us about the Mediterranean diet. What is it and why do why do some cardiologists recommend that style of uh, diet for their patients? And I think you touched on this maybe with the, the, the different geographies you just mentioned. Yeah. So there's not a single definition of what a Mediterranean diet is. Mm -hmm. It's typically high in fruits, vegetables, whole grains, beans, nuts, and seeds. Mm -hmm. Include olive oils as an important source of a specific fat. We call it monounsaturated fat. Okay. It allows low to moderate wine consumption. And it generally includes low to moderate amount of fish, poultry, dairy products, and even includes a little bit of a red meat. Right. So why is Mediterranean diet so much better, right? So it's been associated with lower overall mortality and cardiovascular mortality, as well as decreased incidence of Parkinson's disease, Alzheimer's, certain types of cancers, and uh, uh, including breast cancer, colorectal cancer. Now, very interestingly, how about Mediterranean diet compared to just a low fat diet period, right? So this year uh, there was a uh, uh, article published in Lancet where they studied a thousand adults with already established coronary disease. And there were these thousand adults with either assigned for Mediterranean diet or low fat diet and followed for seven years. And interestingly, the 
the group that followed a Mediterranean diet compared to the low-fat diet had less uh, heart attacks, needed wow. less coronary intervention or arterial intervention in other parts of the body, fewer strokes, and even lower cardiovascular death. So right. Mediterranean diet, even compared to low-fat diet, has been shown to be superior. That's why we are um, so, we are so yeah. strong proponents of that diet. Okay. Yeah, no, that, that is, um, definitely evidence-based and, um, and a motivator. So you actually just said, you, you said something interesting in that, um, they were already at risk and cause they had heart disease, but it was reversible or it, it, it lowered their risk by using the strategy of changing, um, the way they eat. So I think that's a huge takeaway for our listeners is that you can prevent this and it's not anything, you know, this is probably such the lowest cost way to do this, right? Because there are medications we take, there, you know, obviously exercise, there's these other other things we do, but changing your diet, well, we got to eat. It's just, now you're just buying different things and um, cooking in a different way and you're not removing flavor or any of the good stuff. You're just um, really being mindful about what you're putting into your body. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, so continuing on uh, sort of the theme of foods, because, you know, this is this is stuff, I think people get inundated, right, with a lot of information, but it's all important and it all interrelates. So um, talk to me a little bit about like keto or high protein diets, high fat diets. You kind of you touched on it uh, a bit in the past two questions. And so um, what are what are some of the takeaways on keto and high protein? So that's a very good question. So the, the 2019 ACC guidelines actually commented on that. Okay. So they're, they're, the, the problem with uh, doing um, uh, high fat, uh, high protein, low carbohydrate is that a lot of times we switch the carbohydrates to animal fat and protein. And literally um, on the guidelines, it actually does a comment on that. When we substitute um, carbohydrates to animal fat and protein, there's been an increase in cardiac and non-cardiac mortality of up to 18%, 18%. Right. If we switch to uh, animal fat and protein. Now, if we switch to plant sources, like uh, vegetable, fruits, Mediterranean kind of diet, then the rate of events has decreased. So like you said, it's about making choices. Yes, I'm okay with you eating less carbohydrates, but just make sure you switch it to more kind of a plant-based, mm -hmm. uh, good, uh, good type of fat, so to speak. Okay. And um, kind of continuing on, uh, you know, other strategies I've, I've heard, I've not, I've not done this, but, you know, supplements like omega-3 or other fish oil supplements um, just as, uh, are they just as healthy as eating like salmon and other types of fish? Now living on the Northwest, we're a little spoiled with our salmon. So we eat a lot of it. Um, but uh, what is, what is uh, sort of your take on um, supplements like omega-3 and fish oil? Yeah, it's been, it's been extensively studied actually. So uh, end of last year, November, there was a very nice expert review uh, discussing this specifically. And the consensus is that basically eating dietary fatty fish, uh, mm -hmm. two servings per week, which is about 175 grams or six ounces of fatty fish, such as salmon, sardine, uh, mackerel, 
herring, trout, tuna, anchovy, those were associated with reduction in cardiovascular events. Now, non-prescription um, fish oil supplements through multiple studies, even in different doses, has never been shown to benefit, hmm. uh, to have a benefit in cardiovascular risk. Right. One caveat, though, is that there's, there is a type of sp very high purity EPA, which is a type of fish oil um, prescription drug that has been associated with decreased uh, events in people with very high risk of cardiovascular events or for people who had cardiovascular events. So basically, to answer your question, um, better just to eat the real thing. That's number one. Right. Supplements, even in high doses, has never been shown to improve outcomes. And there is a prescription type of fish oil that we reserve for either people who had an event or are in high risk of having a very high uh, an event. Yeah. Right. Or, you know, folks that may not have access to that, uh, to, to those types of, of fish. I mean, I think you could, um, but it can get a little expensive. So I think um, having sort of alternative strategies um, may be good. I can't, I, living in South Texas, I, I, you know, there's some fish you can eat out there, um, I suppose, but we tend to like our red meats and our barbecue and our steaks. <laughs> Which, which is not what you're recommending here, not really. Which is not what we're recommending. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, but I, yeah, no, I, I can say I have, I have moving from the South, from South Texas to, I lived in Alaska for a period of time and, and then in the Northwest, Washington, Oregon, and I definitely eat way more salmon here. It just, it just seems to be more available. I don't know. Maybe it, it is in San Antonio too, but it, it, it's driven, I think, just by the culture. You see, you just see it around a lot. And, um, you know, especially when you can catch it yourself, that's even more fun. So, yes. <laughs> so uh, this is another interesting, interesting one um, around su other supplements like red yeast rice um, or, uh, I, I'm going to, hopefully I say this right, COQ10. Um, are those effective alternatives to prescriptions or uh, is it more hype than help? Excellent question. So red yeast rice is, does lower your cholesterol. Really? You do have a point. Red yeast rice does lower your bad cholesterol by about 20 to 30%. But the cholesterol lowering effect coming from the red yeast rice is due to presence of a compound that is similar to lovastatin, which mm. is one of the statins we prescribe. Wow. <clears throat> so, uh, and, and although red yeast rice does lower your LDL levels, we, we don't have data that it actually lowers outcomes. It improves outcomes. Mm -hmm. So at the end of the day, if you really want to improve outcomes, and we know that red yeast rice is basically lovastatin, uh, why not do it more scientifically? That's one thing. The other thing is, yes, you can get red yeast rice in many different sources, but number one, you don't know if it truly has red yeast rice at what concentration and if there's other possible contaminants or, or toxins associated with that. And not only that, the red yeast rice has, you know, the, it can cause muscle pain like certain types of statins. So at the end of the day, uh, probably just to get your, uh, sh we should get our cholesterol checked and if appropriate treat, you know, with, you know, with a compound that we know what it is, we know what the dose is and we can track and there's no like 
contaminants that is out of our control, um, like redis rice, when, when mm -hmm. it's not really regulated in terms of concentration. Right, right. Now, the other question is about CoQ10, right? Coenzyme Q10. So in the past, there's been some uh, suggestion that CoQ10 may help with statin-associated muscle pain. Statins are cholesterol medications, and one of the side effects is causing muscle pain. Now, when we use statins, uh, the, 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 the muscles can be depleted uh, of the substance, uh, the CoQ10. And in the past, we thought that, you know, maybe supplementing with CoQ10, we can help with the muscle symptoms. Now, unfortunately, the data does not support that. And we don't have strong evidence that it really does help with, you know, muscle uh, statin associated muscle pain. So at the end of the day, currently, American Heart Association is not recommending CoQ10 uh, to, to help with, you know, muscle pain from the statins. Yeah. Okay. Okay, well, thank you for clarifying that. I, I, I did not know any of that. <laughs> um, so, it, you know, it, it seems like, and this is something we have heard a lot about, which um, is like um, aspirin, taking aspirin. It used to be suggested to patients, um, but advice in recent years is that not everyone should take it. Um, I, you know, again, kind of getting to your point, everybody's different. Um, what's the latest guidance on, um, on that and who should or shouldn't be taking aspirin? Oh, excellent question. Excellent question, Judy. So uh, in the past, I even remember, you know, <laughs> years ago, oh, you're, you're, you're 50? Oh, you should be on an aspirin, period, automatically. Yeah. This yeah. has drastically changed. So in 2018, there's been three large studies and uh, to the point that the data was so strong in 2019, the American Heart Association guidelines completely uh, uh, changed the way we look at aspirin. So aspirin, like any drug, is not uh, without its risks. And namely, the risk that we're talking about is bleeding, right? It's an antiplatelet right. medication. It's going to increase your risk of bleeding. The data now, the current recommendation is as follows. If you're age greater than 70 and you do not have known disease, uh, no, you know, blocked arteries or had a heart attack or stroke or, you know, peripheral artery disease. If you're age greater than 70 and you have known disease, no known disease, you should not be routinely administrating aspirin for everybody. Mm -hmm. Now, between ages 40 and 70, if you already have disease, you know, you already have blood, you should be on a baby aspirin. But for primary prevention, for people who never had an event, it goes on an individual risk, individual basis. But when people with increased risk of bleeding, like, you know, they keep on having ulcers in the stomach or mm -hmm. other sources of bleeding, we should not be giving it in people who do not have disease. Right. That's the current, the latest recommendation. So basically, uh, since these recommendations and the data that we have, we have been switching away from aspirin uh, um, as, a, as a primary preventative strategy for all comers. Right, right. Kind of gets down to like like the N of one, right? Where, where everybody's just so unique um, and has a story, which is just all that much more important of why when you go to your doctor, you know, to make sure to tell your story, um, give all those factors um, as it helps really to craft the, the, the care plan that's fitted for you as an individual. Um, so we're going to talk a little bit now about, um, 
some, uh, we know exercise is good, um, but to, you know, to kind of get at it is that, um, is what kind of exercise is most beneficial? Um, should people mostly focus on cardio or aerobic or other types of training? Um, and, you know, so what should we be doing to care for our heart uh, from an exercise standpoint? Very good. Yeah. So uh, we often advise people towards aerobic exercise since many, many studies support aerobic exercise to reduce, you know, cardiovascular risk. But we can't forget resistance training. Uh, which should also be encouraged because of other uh, benefits such as improving physical functioning, including mm -hmm. your glycemic control, your sugar control, and possibly even improving your blood pressure. So, but the, the whether resistance training specifically lower uh, atherosclerotic cardiovascular risk, uh, where we, we, the data is not as robust. Regardless, we should have a, we should do a combination of both. Right. Um, there's strong inverse relationship between the amount of moderate to vigorous physical activity and cardiovascular events, which means the more you do, the lower events you will have. Mm -hmm. And the current recommendation is that uh, adults should be advised towards about 150 exercise per week of accumulated moderate intensive aerobic activities mm -hmm. or 75 minutes per week of vigorous intensive aerobic activities. So what is moderate? What is vigorous, right? So moderate is basically brisk walking at a two and a half to four miles per hour speed, biking mm -hmm. at a five to nine miles per hour speed, ballroom dancing, yoga, mm -hmm. recreational swimming. Now, vigorous activities will be more like jogging or running, biking at more than 10 miles per hour, singles, tennis, and swimming laps. Right. So 150 of moderate per week or 75 of vigorous per week. There's not a lower limit of benefit. There's not like, oh, I have to cross a certain threshold to get some benefit. No, mm -hmm. even and if you cannot achieve those levels, there will be benefit. There will be benefit. Right. Right. So staying, staying moving. I mean, I think, um, you know, just, I, I taught, uh, I've taught Zumba for about eight years and, um, I had all age groups and I mean, I had, um, students who were 83 years old and I swear there were maybe 50 and just, and I asked them, what is, what's the secret? And they just said, I keep moving. I go out and I play soccer with my kids, my grandkids, you know, and it's just, it's just, you know, to kind of, uh, keep the joints, you know, going and the heart and their lungs. And um, that was definitely a secret um, that I've heard from from a few of my students that I was just super impressed. And most of them ended up being my backup dancers and they had their special spot um, <laughs> in my in my group exercise class. So uh, they were the first ones there, got the got the best spot in the room. And Johnny, um, I always tell my patients, don't go find something just because your doctor or somebody said you should do that. Do something you love. Love, yes. Do something you love. It may be um, tap dancing. Right. It may be hula dancing. I don't know. Yeah. Everybody has something they they love. Don't make it. Uh, don't think of it as a chore. Don't think of it as a, yeah. a checkbox. Think of it something like, hey, I enjoy this. I like to do this. I miss it. Right. When you say, when somebody tells me, no, I miss doing something, then you know, hey, this is, this is something that they, they love. Find that something. 
like you said, anything moving Zumba. Zumba is great. Love Zumba. <laughs> yes. Um, I, I agree. Zumba is amazing. And it, it, it meets people where they are. So, you know, um, when you're planning your sort of your exercise strategies, um, it really, the takeaway is, um, you know, align it with, you know, where you are on your journey, find those things to your point that will motivate you and keep you interested in, in doing those things. Um, and, and you're, you're all the more successful for, for kind of taking that approach. Um, so I'm going to, I'm going to jump to a question, um, that we mostly, some, you, you mentioned it earlier, but it's about alcohol consumption and, um, you know, I, I, there's, there's an impact on your heart health. Um, so talk, talk to us about that. You mentioned it earlier and I, I kind of wanted to circle back on that. So like I mentioned, uh, the Mediterranean diet does allow for moderate to low uh, levels of alcohol consumption. And we'll talk a little bit about that. Mm -hmm. But your question was how does uh, drinking too much alcohol affect the heart? Yeah. It can affect it in different ways, to be honest with you. Number one, it can raise certain levels of fats in the blood known as triglycerides. Now, increased triglycerides with lowered LDL does increase um, the risk of fatty uh, buildup in the artery walls. That's what. Mm -hmm. Excessive drinking can also lead to high blood pressure. It is a direct toxin to the heart. So basically, if you drink too much of it, it will make the heart weak and have an abnormal heart function. We call this alcoholic cardiomyopathy. And unfortunately, we do see it from time to time. It can cause cardiac arrhythmias, um, and specifically, to be honest, binge drinking. When you binge drink, it can push you into this uh, rhythm we call atrial fibrillation. And what is binge drinking? And binge drinking is usually having five or more drinks in about a two-hour span for men and about four drinks in a two-hour span for women. Yep. That drastically increases your chance of getting into uh, atrial fibrillation. The other thing is that, you know, alcohol gets you lots of extra calories. It leads to obesity, higher mm -hmm. risk of being, developing diabetes, and it's a, you know, a vicious yeah. cycle. Yeah? Yeah. So how much is safe? How much should we drink, right? So if you drink, uh, our recommendation is to limit your alcohol consumption to more than two drinks per day for men and no more than one drink per day for females. Mm -hmm. Now, a drink is defined as a 12-ounce beer, a four-ounce wine, mm -hmm. one, and a half, one and a half ounce of uh, spirits, like whiskey, vodka, tequila, gin, or rum. Mm -hmm. So two drinks or less a day per, uh, for men, men, and about a drink or less per day for me, a woman. Mm -hmm. the recommendation. Yeah. You know, um, kind of, again, another sort of ge geography thing. I, I never, never had as much wine as I have since I lived in the North Northwest, since it's wine country up here, uh, down in Texas, they actually do have some good wines in Texas, but I have been, I was shocked to see how much sugar is in wine. Um, and so it's, it's, um, you know, having, you know, family members with diabetes and stuff like that. I, I have, I'm, I'm at risk for diabetes. I get my A1C checked all the time too, when I get my panels done. But um, yeah, so that moderation of, of, of wine, it, it's, it's impressive how much sugar uh, is in a single glass of wine um, to your point about the calories. 
Yeah. Um, you've, you've mentioned triglycerides a couple of times. So uh, when you get your blood, your uh, cholesterol done, this is typically um, a, a panel that is also ran. Is that correct? Uh, That's you get correct. Triglycerides? Okay. That's correct. So, so, so the whole uh, uh, cholesterol panel, we will check your whole profile, basically your total cholesterol, your, your HDL, which is the good cholesterol, the LDL, which is the bad cholesterol, the triglycerides. Um, and, um, and a lot of times, you know, American Heart Association, the 2018 guidelines for the cholesterol, uh, for cholesterol check, we should be checking the whole panel. Um, the only thing is that sometimes if you're not fully fasting for the triglyceride, uh, for the cholesterol check, sometimes the triglycerides could be falsely elevated. That may not reflect mm. your, your, your cholesterol in the long run. Mm -hmm. Um, that's what I would say that sometimes, you know, if the triglycerides high one episode, maybe double uh, check it again, uh, after a, you know, 14 hour fast. Right. Right. Okay. That's, that's a good call. Um, I want to touch on something, and this is actually a, a, almost a little personal, um, as I've had a recent situation to help out a friend, but, you know, going to the doctor to a lot of people is intimidating. Um, you know, especially I, I feel like sometimes, um, people end up having sort of this, this guilt, you know, if they feel like they're in poor, poor, poor health or poor condition, and maybe they feel like they shouldn't be, you know, you know, if they're, if they're younger, um, but they've then started to not feel well, um, going to the doc, going to the doctor can seem like maybe it's, you know, it's a little overkill or, or I'm, I'm overthinking these things. Um, whether that's due to lifestyle choices, um, maybe the, the, the pace of their life and the types of food they're eating, um, the way they've taken care of themselves or not, um, or just, you know, sometimes people who don't have time or energy, like, you know, um, I was raised by a single mom and, and she probably had very little time, but, um, she actually did a good job exercising and stuff. But the reality is, is that, um, sometimes these, these lifestyles, uh, are difficult to change. Um, we, we, as we know, access to care, um, there's just some barriers for some, uh, populations that are just a little bit more vulnerable to that. Um, out of all the, we talked a lot of, uh, about a lot of strategies, um, to do some things that are well within our control and, uh, you know, but what are, what's some advice that you would give, um, whether, you know, to people that they may feel like it's overkill to kind of go to the doctor for not feeling well, but you should, um, you might be, have a busy lifestyle, but you should do these things, right? This is going to help your quality of life. So what advice would you give, um, coming, coming from your end and all the stories you hear, um, for people to just get past those barriers? You know, uh, Judy, we rarely see overkills uh, in our clinic. There's always something that you, the, the patients will take away from that clinic visit. Right. Even if it's just, you know, some little advice about, you know, how to exercise or what to do, what not to eat or uh, and this and that. I, I don't think, I think you should always uh, check and really take care of yourself. Like, like we mentioned earlier, you only have one single body and this mm -hmm. is going to stick with, with the rest of your life. You're, you're in it all the time. If you're uncomfortable, if there's something bothering you, you're in your body a hundred percent of the time. It's not like, you know, oh, my car is making this little weird noise. It says it doesn't bother me. I just drive it for 20 minutes a day. No, you're in your body a hundred percent of the time. That's number yeah. one. So you, you got to make sure it's a comfortable place to be. Number two is 
How about, well, I got to take care of three kids and my husband is sick. He's got Alzheimer's. I don't have time for this. Now, to people who, and we do have, we do hear a lot of people tell us that. Yeah. And I always go back to the airplane. And what I mean by that, when we start doing the, the, the airplane safety check and what to do, they always tell you the following, right? If there's an emergency and yeah. the oxygen mask comes off, you first put on your mask, then you go put on your children, your child's mask. And the reason is, if you're not able to be well, you cannot help others. So yes. taking care of yourself is taking care of a loved one or loved ones. So just really remember that, that especially if there are people depending on you, taking care of you is literally taking care of them. So, and, and never be ashamed of saying like, oh, I've, I've, um, I've, take, I, I've treated my body so bad for years. Now uh, I want to, I'm ashamed of seeing a doctor. No, we, we, we do not think like that. We absolutely do not think about it. In fact, every time I see patients like this, I say, hey, this is, this is half of the battle. Recognizing right. that things, something is wrong is half of the battle. You should be proud of yourself. And that's where the journey starts today, period. Right, right. And, and 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 taking that first step is brave. Like just do it. The worst, the worst that comes out of it is it's not as bad as you thought, but um definitely the advice is 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 just get that, get, get that help. Go listen to your body. And and it's not, don't profile yourself as I'm too young to have that, or you know, I'm a woman, I don't I, I don't have heart attacks, you know, or trying to explain it away that that is probably the most dangerous thing to do and it's just talk to your primary care doctor tell them up front but advocate for yourself um you know if if, if the advice you're you know it, it sometimes i feel like um and this just happened recently so this is why i'm, I'm really kind of speaking to this is it, it didn't seem like this person might have what was what they thought they had and um we had to have a conversation we said you know what why don't you just go see a cardiologist and and they did. And now they're on a path. Okay. And, and this person didn't think that they probably uh, could have heart disease. And so I'm, I'm really glad that they did that. Um, they have a baby on the way and it's their first child. And it's like, I said exactly what you said. I'm like, Hey buddy, you got to wake up at 3am and, and, and do bottles. You can't be, you know, uh, worried about, <laughs> you know, you, you gotta, we gotta get you tuned up for this. And so um, you're absolutely right. So I think an important thing for our listeners is, is we have to support each other. It takes the village and um, always encouraging uh, our friends, our family um, to listen to, to, to their bodies. So, um, you know, there, there are a lot of resources, I think, that are available for people out there. And we've had a, an amazing conversation, Dr. Uh, Dr. Pan. And, um, you know, there's there's diet things that we can do. Um, be mindful about, um, you know, sort of your exercise plans and do things that motivate you, keep you kind of going. Um, you know, even when you get your numbers, understand them, ask questions, you know, get your blood pressure checked, but do it the right way um, so that we have validity and integrity in those numbers. And so thank you for demonstrating that. Um, but, you know, there are resources in the community. Um, you know, I know uh, at least within Providence, we have a program called Basecamp. Um, which has a lot of resources that are also free. Um, so to get to the point about, you know, 
busy people may not have schedules, but there's free exercise videos, there's cooking, you know, recipes on there that are heart healthy. Um, and that's at uh, welcometobasecamp.org where patients can just, you know, people, even if they're not a patient yet, can have access to these things to, to lead healthy lives. So you've given us a lot of information about all the types of foods, but just to be cautious and, and know what's in them. Um, but is there anything else uh, that um, we haven't touched on today that you would like our listeners to know? So I, I think, oh, and the other, an, an additional resource I always refer my patients to is a website called uh, cardiosmart.org. Hmm. It's a website uh, sponsored by the ACC, American College of Cardiology. It does go through various different topics in a way that it's easy to understand. Uh, and, you know, th those are information. This is information endorsed by the ACC, though, so pretty respectable. Yes, yes, I've uh, actually used that site, too. Oh, that's great. Mm -hmm. The other thing I would say is that everybody has, especially with the holidays, with the end of year coming along, everybody says, no, no, I'll do it. And it'll be my New Year's resolution. <laughs> it will be my New Year's resolution. Right. Right. But there's nothing magic about January 1st. It's not that you would be more successful January 1st, whatever year it is, as yeah. opposed to today. Why not today? Why not today? Literally, why not today? Why not make small little changes starting today? Why not go for a 10-minute walk today? 10 minutes. That's all right. I have. Then next week, you go 15. And then you slowly increase. Again, this is this is not a splint. This is not yeah. this is a long marathon. And there's nothing magic about the new year. There's nothing magic about, you know. Maybe there's some magic about Christmas, but I don't know. But there's <laughs> magic about a specific date. Why not have it start? Why not start today? That's right. what I always tell my patients. Right. Yeah, I think you owe you. You definitely can uh, give that gift to yourself, um, and and it 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 means that you have that much more time to have a the best quality of life you can have. Right. That's the end game there. Yeah. So um, that is great advice. And um, again, uh, Dr. Penn, thank you for joining us today. And it's been an absolute pleasure talking with you. Um, and again, just appreciate you being here. Thank you. Thank you for the opportunity, Judy. And thanks for the work you do uh, for our uh, community. Thank you for joining us today on this important topic on Heart Matters. We look forward to continuing the important conversation on heart health and wellness with more experts from Providence in future episodes. Make sure you listen to all of our shows on Dash Radio under Future of Health Radio or your favorite podcast platform and follow us on social media. We can be found on Twitter and Facebook at Providence and on Instagram under Providence Health Systems. To learn more about our missions, programs, and services, go to Providence.org. And for more information on Boston Scientific, visit BostonScientific.com. And please remember, the information provided during this program is for educational purposes only. You should always consult your healthcare provider if you have any questions regarding a medical condition or treatment. Thanks for listening. And remember, at Providence, we see the life in you.